we want our son to have a independent life. Independence is what we want. We want him to be able to go to work, earn some money, go to a grocery store, buy food, eat, and then repeat that again the next day. That's, that's exactly what we want. My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me the chance to learn about the many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients, parents, and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type bondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Subscribe to the Raising Rare podcast to hear the story unfold. you are enjoying the ongoing, unfolding story of baby Raghav and his parents, Sanath and Ramya. In March of 2020, Sanath and Ramya held the very first GPX4 scientific conference. According to the Seattle Times, King County, which includes Seattle, had 693 cases and 60 deaths from the coronavirus on the day of the conference. Seattle was seen as the epicenter. How little we knew back then. We have previously shared the behind-the-scenes look at how Sanath and Ramya very rapidly adopted a virtual conference format due to the COVID outbreak. It turned out that this change served to enhance the attendance and the effectiveness of the conference. It was a milestone in the search for a treatment and cure for baby Raghav. In this episode, we turn back to the conference to talk about the content and the outcomes from that day. The importance and power of bringing experts in different fields together to focus on one problem just cannot be overstated. Talk a little bit about kind of the structure of the the sessions and the breaks and and how you set that up. What, What was the basic pattern? In the roadmap, so one of the tools that we used through the day to guide a discussion um, is something called a roadmap chart. And I had uh, the roadmap chart, chart is, is complete now. It's up on the website, curegpx4.org slash roadmap, and we can link it to the show notes. One of my biggest worries going into the conference was that it'll become a basic science discussion, a discussion where people think about science very deeply without thinking about a therapy development. And and I am all in for science. I actually get really excited when we discuss all all the the nerdy science details. But at the end of the day, we want therapies. And if this group cannot produce therapies, then we have failed in our responsibility. 
And so one of the tools that we used was this thing called a roadmap chart. And it's just a table where each column is a step in the drug development pipeline. Each row describes what we already know about the step, what we have, the, the physical tangible artifacts we have, and what we would need to make progress. And so this framework allowed us to capture all of the things that we know about the drug development pipeline or our roadmap in one chart. The brainstorming sessions had several questions that would help us uncover our needs for the next steps. And so that's how this roadmap chart was structured. This is the high level sort of overview of how we kept the conference focused on therapy development. We split the conference into three sections based on based on what's necessary to, based on the types of drugs you could think about. So the first session is basic science. Uh, that's where the disease comes in. Whatever we need to uh, fulfill the first column of understanding the disease was in the first session. Uh, we took a break and then we talked about small molecules. Um, this is where we talked about the models we had, uh, the small molecule drugs we could repurpose or discover new ones. And the third one was emerging technologies, which included ASOs, gene therapies, um, CRISPR, uh, RNA editing, and, and so on. So the, the first scientific session was around the basic science, and it was fast and furious. It was moving very quickly. I felt myself like trying to keep up with what they were talking about and details were flying by. And you had each session broken into kind of a context talk, a stimulus, and then discussion. And the discussion, these people were just sparking ideas off of each other and asking really good questions. And you could see when they would pause, when they're asked a question they hadn't thought of themselves before and go, I'm going to need to think about that. And as scientists do, he probably already was like thinking, how do I explore that? Did that session accomplish what you designed it for? I think it did. There, there were two intentional design decisions that, we, that I made for that session. One, it needed to have everybody, actually sort of the conference, we needed everybody so no question gets unanswered. And, and two, it needed to give us the next, say, six months worth of activities to do, not more than that. And so high resolution activity for the next six months. I, I think it, it did both. Um, one of the places where I'm, I'm really happy that it did was um, when someone was talking about the mitochondria and the fact that we need to study the mitochondria. And then there was a mitochondrial researcher on the, to on the, on the call that jumped in and said, yeah, we could do it. Which was nice because it was, it was not an idea that was floating around. It was a decision that was made. Point of the mitochondrial expert being there to say, yeah, we can do that was so critical to the success of this. And I think this first session showed how, how successful the conference was going to be in the end because there weren't people saying, well, we don't know if we can do that. We don't know how we do that. We don't know if that's feasible. That didn't happen. What happened was someone said, I know a lab that does that or we already do that, or here's something that we can do right now to test that. Going back to the, the modeling demonstration that we had happen live, you know, that was just, wow, there was an expert there. So I think this just showed the brilliance of bringing these people together and giving them a structure to work in, which always makes it better. But let's get down to some of the 
the content of it. There were some several pathways that were talked about in this roundtable. Which did you find most applicable or promising for Raghav? And why did you find that? When you talk about pathways, I, I, I call, I, I'd like to call them targets. Um, going back to the drug development pipeline terminology of disease targets, candidate drugs, leads, and clinical trials. I, I like to think of them as targets. Uh, and GPX4 as the protein, the gene, is definitely a viable target. Uh, there was a lot of content that was shared and around how the mutant GPX4 works and, and stuff like that. There were new targets that we discovered. There was a, a gene called FSP1 that was supposed to be uh, acting sort of independently um, to do the same task as GPX4 does, um, but we don't quite know how well uh, FSP1 and GPX4 sort of compare with each other. But this gives, it gives us an alternate route to target. So we could potentially even think about doing a gene therapy for FSP1 with FSP1, which means we would have FSP1 overexpressed in these genes. We don't, we, to our surprise, it might even rescue the gene, this cell better than GPX4, we don't know. Uh, and uh, the funny thing was towards the end of the conference, like almost in the last half hour, I think, someone said, hey, there is this other gene that, that we could be discovered, that we could be looking at called GSH1, GCH1. Uh, and, and that was something that the experts haven't even thought about, uh, but it made a lot of sense when we talked about gene therapy, because one of the cool parts with gene therapy for some diseases is that you could, you could fix a gene and that by definition would automatically fix its neighbors. So you don't have to really go into every one of the cells and fix them. You could fix one cell and that cell will say to its neighbors, Hey, I am good. You want to probably correct yourself. And it'll just alt, it'll just change its internal state to correct itself, which is which is fantastic. And uh, that's called bystander effect. And and turns out that there is a bystander effect in this pathway uh, by turning on a, a different gene. So you would want to do a gene therapy that turns on two genes: one for correcting itself, another one, another one for bystander effect, which will let the other genes, other cells, know that hey, that that in this colony we are doing something different now. And so that was cool. Uh, I think that was the more surprising one that I didn't expect to come out. You've just gone like five layers deep into biology there. And I, I think one of the one of the kind of going back to why um, this probably happened uh, is we are here to find a roadmap for the next two years for therapy for, for finding a treatment for this disease in the next two years, given five hundred million dollars. And I followed up and said, I don't have five hundred million dollars. Neither do I have two years, right? So what this, what this did was it put a constraint. It also lifted a constraint. One of the constraints it put on was time. So we want to get it done sooner. And the constraint it lifted was money. And so everybody knew that, that, that everything was possible. Uh, pretty much we had unlimited money. We would do all of these in parallel. Um, and everybody knew that the time was of essence. So they would focus um, their, their decisions on optimizing for less time and more money, which is what I want. And then I can figure out a way to reduce the money later. Yeah, I think it opened up people's uh, paths of thinking, their, their rivers of thinking, because they didn't have to worry about how is this going to get paid for? We just, you just said, take that off the table for now. Assume 
that over time, $500 million is going to accumulate around this and, and people will get paid for their work and get paid for all the equipment and reagents and things they need. So you take that off the table, suddenly new ideas can come flying through because you're not saying, I need to pick one. You, you say, I, I want this growing um, and just reaching out. So good move on your part. Good move on your part. Thank you. I, I also learned this framework called objective strategy and tactic. I, I learned this in a completely unrelated context. Uh, I learned this from a podcast by Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia. So he's, he has a famous podcast called uh, Peter Atia Drive, where he talks about uh, longev longevity, health, and with deep biology. So I go to his podcast to learn the biology, which is fascinating. But he also explains how he sort of created this new framework for health. Um, and he explained it using this framework called objective strategy and tactic. The objective is at a high level, you explain what you're trying to achieve. And strategies are, are guiding principles that someone can use to make decisions. And tactics are, are practical activities that you could do. In the roadmap chart document, I explained Here's my objective, which is two years and $500 million, go and find a treatment. And the strategy is repurposing for short term, uh, drug repurposing for short term, um, making it attractive for industry players for long term, and gene therapy or whatever needs to, needs to keep a permanent longer term cure. So multiple therapeutics um, is what we focus on. Uh, and then the tactics is a roadmap chart and all the activities that we have to do there. Um, and because it was already put up front and everybody knew that, people would draw uh, ideas from the strategy and they were able to draw tactics from the strategy in going back to some of the decisions that were made. It was in line with the strategy that I had put together already, but we had zero time spent in discussing the strategy. Yeah. I could recall some of the conversations where people were not directly referring to that, but referring to it. And they, they were making that separation long-term, short-term, long-term, short-term. And I think, that intellectual space that you created allowed them to operate very effectively in, in a few hours. The next session was actually around models used for small drug discovery. And we learned about mice and worms and cells and everything. And you had several experts online and they each had their favorite models and they wanted to, to talk about their model and the strengths of it and the issues with it. And they were doing it in a very objective way. They were just all trying to get all that on the table at, you know, in the short time they had. What do you see as the biggest challenge in selecting one or more of those models now? Oh, we're going to select all of them. Anything that works. There's no one or two. Uh, I, I say all because I, I think each model has its own strength and weakness. And it's good in some cases. It's not good in other cases. My favorite model is the mouse model. Honestly, I, I feel like if I can get something to work on a mice, uh, I'll be more willing to give it to my son than otherwise. Um, so if, if I can stop doing anything in other models, I'll just do things on mice. I, I even had discussions about offline up to one of the researchers about building a huge mice colony um, so I can continually test drugs on mice. And, and he said, it's not as trivial. Mice just don't breed when you ask them to breed. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the colonies doesn't just scale uh, linearly. Uh, the, the cost of the colony and the complexity scales exponentially. Uh, not exponent, but maybe non-linear, non let me put it that way. 
but anyway, I, I think my favorite model is the mice model because it's, it's very close to humans. I also like the fly model because of the speed that you can operate the flies on. And my next favorite model would be iPS cell lines, but we don't have them yet. But the cell models are typically good for measuring activity at a small, at a, at a, at a microscopic level. You can go higher resolution and say, you know, what happened to this protein? What happened to these levels? What happened to these things? You can make changes and, and measure results in, in a matter of seconds. And you can do that in high throughput fashion with, with automated technologies and stuff like that that you can't do with, say, mouse models. Uh, but I, I, I still like the mice. They're cute. Well, and I think that the point that they're closer to humans is their confidence building. And that's what all of those incremental models are doing is building your confidence that you, what you're using is doing something. And it's also, there's a, there's a whole Twitter world thing. It's a hashtag that says, it says just in mice. <laughs> and it's, it's great because those pop up when someone you know, has something that's on like CNN and ABC and CBS and it's, oh, someone has something for the latest cancer cure and, and it's like, but it says in mice. And so it's, it's closer, it's not quite there. Uh, and what you really want to do is get into the, the clinic. And in fact, uh, Lauren Black brought up the need for clinical biomarkers, things to be measuring now that tell you what's happening with with the disease, but more importantly, what happens after a treatment or an intervention of any sort that you do, does it change? It didn't, there were a lot of ideas kicking around. Did any of them really capture your attention? Yeah, yeah. Biomarkers uh, have been one of the most elusive things for me to understand and get a hold of. And everybody that I had been speaking with about biomarkers previously, None of them were able to make a decision. And, and, and oddly enough, it was almost always the people in this conference uh, that I used to speak to about biomarkers. And, and they were like, yeah, you could do this, you could do that, and you could try this, and maybe it'll work, and maybe it'll not. But when the group came together, we made decisions uh, to do some biomarkers, which was exciting. And I think everybody understood that the next immediate big need is biomarkers. If we don't have good biomarkers, we don't have the ability to verify that a drug actually works. I'd, I'd, I'd been thinking about biomarkers for several months now, but I'd never made any traction there. And the fact that the group came together and together said we need biomarkers made it more reaffirming to me. And it, it gave me a lot more motivation to go pursue that in, in full swing. And now everybody in the group understands that that's the next thing that we're going to work on. So there are several biomarkers that came to my attention there. The, the most interesting one was something called a neurofilament. And that's the first time I'm hearing of a neurofilament. It's a protein that you can measure in the blood. And the level of neurofilament has just shown to be a good biomarker for several neurodegenerative conditions. And this is a, a recent literature that's starting up. Um, so I, I think that was very exciting. Uh, if we can measure the neurofilament protein, there's this other idea of measuring NADPH levels in brain using MR spectroscopy. By measuring NADPH levels, you can indirectly measure the activity of GPX4 because it, it's rate limiting the production of NADPH. So if you can measure NADPH in the brain, which we don't have a mechanism to do it today, uh, but apparently there are new fancy MR spectroscopy machines that, um, that can measure these levels. 
Um, and if you can measure those levels, then they could be good biomarkers. There's only a few labs in the world that can do it. And if they, if they show significant difference, then we can actually measure the effect of a drug in the brain. And so that, those two were the big new things that came along, and I'm excited for them. Somebody on the phone actually has access to one of those more powerful MRIs. Somebody is saying, oh, well, our MRI doesn't have enough resolution. She goes, well, we have one. You know, it opened up again. People, the possibilities were there. The barriers weren't because you had a good group of people on the phone and, and they knew what they're talking about. The last session that you had during the day, the one on emerging therapeutic approaches, I didn't expect you to have given our earlier conversations and your disdain for the gene therapy as the first approach to look at but then we got into the conversation and it was kicking around and there didn't seem to be one for SSMD specifically, but there were lots of insights coming out of that. What did you pick up? I learned that gene therapy is not black and white. That's the, that's, that's the biggest learning for me. If you, do, if you read the literature, if you read uh, the blog post, if you read news, everybody is talking about gene therapy as this mechanism to fix the broken gene and you're done. Well, sure, at a high level, that's what everybody's hoping for. But when you go, when you get into the more technical aspects of it, it's just not that trivial at all. And like anything in the research field, there is a lot of probability of failure, which is, which explains why there are so many gene therapy companies trying to do, trying to develop a therapy for the same disease over and over again, because the success is not guaranteed. To me, the biggest takeaway with gene therapy was it's not black and white. Like I can't just pour in, say, $10 million and then get this d- done in two years. It's not that. Even if I pour in $100 million, I'm going to get something that's broken. It might work, maybe work. Uh, and it was brought up in the discussion in the conference as well, where, where someone said, yeah, if you just you know, try to fix the neurological symptoms, what are you going to do about the skeletal presentations? And gene therapy will, with AAV9 will not, the AAV vectors will not work with, uh, with uh, fast dividing cells. And skeletal muscles are fast dividing. They, do, they keep dividing almost through the theory of life, but in the early stages of life, they are incredibly fast dividing. And so the, the gene therapy uh, has been studied and observed in neurons uh, for, for decades now, but I don't think anybody has ever studied gene therapy in the context of skeletal muscles. And so... Right there, we have to do a combination therapy of gene therapy plus a small molecule. Um, so going them, doing them hand in hand uh, is important. And it also reinforced um, my initial gut reaction of, yeah, you can't just fix a source code, just that quite simply. And it is true. So having invested in small molecules, uh, repurposing small molecule ther- um, drug developments um, for the last several months, I think now is the the time when we have to start adding gene therapy to our panel of drugs that we are are looking at. I was always hesitant to go to gene therapy because one, I don't have the money. Um, I'm just afraid that I will fail. I'm literally afraid that I will fail because I don't have the money and everybody's trying to fix their thing by getting money and throwing it in gene therapy. And two, when there is so much attention on a technology, it means there is so much nice to it. Uh, I really, it, it takes a while to figure out the signal to noise and I'm worried and I'm actually afraid that I might fail because I was going, chasing the noise and not the signal there. 
And so that, those are the two big reasons why I was worried about gene therapy. And now that we have made several significant progress in the small molecule side, um, and we will continue to make progress because the ball is already rolling there, it's time to sort of switch gears, spend 50% of my time focusing on gene therapy and the remaining time focusing on small molecules. So I think your outlook on this is just so wise and you've, you're learning. You're becoming a discovery scientist right now. I can see you forming. Um, it's, you're thinking through these different things and I think your insight about the signal to the noise is so correct. And in the state that, that science is right now, so many people are working on it, they're going to solve the problems and they're going to solve it on on different diseases, but the problems aren't disease specific. The, the problems are related to the type of therapy. You know, if you're using a vector and the vector causes reactions by the body that doesn't allow it to, to be used again or, or just shuts it down, or the vector doesn't get to the tissues you want, or the vector doesn't get to fast dividing versus slow dividing cells, it doesn't make sense. Well, they're going to solve those problems because they're seeing them all over the place and they're common. You've got limited resources, time, brain power. Focus on the things that you can do short term first and let that one unfold on its own. So, there were two big highlights of this session, and we talked about one of them already. So, when Lance Stewart did the modeling, that was great. He just he came back and, he, and everybody agreed Exxon 6 needs to stay for this, this gene to be functioning. The second highlight for me, though, was when someone asked, I don't know who it was, but he said, we need to ask the parents about the most important clinical need today. He was asking directly to you, what is the most important clinical need? What was your response? This is something I had thought about a lot. And uh, I had mentioned to Dr. Christian Wigby uh, in the first session to cover patient needs. And she had a slide on patient needs and, uh, and explained what we are looking at at a high level. We want our son to have an independent life. Independence is what we want. We want him to be able to go to work, earn some money, go to a grocery store, buy food, eat, and then repeat that again the next day. That's, that's exactly what we want. We don't really care if he works at a McDonald's or if he works at a hedge fund or if he, if he's, if he works at a university. I don't really care. As long as he can do these activities every single day and he's happy, I think we have succeeded here. And so I explained that to the, the, the group and, and uh, they, they got it right away. They got it right away, which was, which was fantastic. And I explained, Dr. Bigby also explained originally in the talk that our first order of business is to slow down the disease progression. And the second order of business is to find a more permanent treatment for this disease. And the third order of business in my mind that's more important is sustainability. We want a drug that my son and other kids with this disease will have access to until they die. And we might not be around to help them again and again and again. And so we have to set a sustainable drug model here. And if we cannot guarantee that, then our job is not done. And that was very clear. Gene therapy is good because it helps. It's a one and done solution, but it's great if it's one and done, but it sucks if it's one and not done because you cannot do it again. Understanding what the patient needs is, understanding what parents want from the therapy is critical 
for all of us to find a treatment. Otherwise, you're, you're looking at a moving target here. You need to have a very, very clear fixed target that you're, you're working towards. And the fixed target that we're working towards is independence. And I'm sure other parents would agree to this as well. This was a great conference. It's your first conference on your scientific team and other experts. You've had about a week now, a little over a week, to digest everything they discussed. What are the next steps? Um, so I have three big next steps. One is following up on the models. Second one is, is doubling down on gene therapy. And the third one is focusing on existing drugs that we could continue giving to my son. I think that's, that, has to be, that has to happen continuously. Uh, one of the drugs that was brought up uh, in, the, in the meeting was selenium supplements that we're going to start today. We're starting at a super low dose. Uh, we'll probably do a blood work in a few weeks to measure the blood selenium levels and hopefully ramp up the dose as long as uh, the selenium levels that don't get outside the normal range. So that's the plan. We'd known about selenium supplements for several months now, but this conference was a tipping point. You know, because all the, all the stakeholders were there, we were able to decide on starting with selenium supplements and my clinician felt comfortable doing that. And so once I start ragging about selenium supplements, I hope it helps. We don't know. I think you'll, you'll find out. It'll take a little while for the balance to change and, and make sure you have the right levels. But it's great that the conference, as you said, was the tipping point. You made a decision. It's an actionable decision. You're taking action. So my last question is just, and it should have been the first question. It's always the question, how's Raghav doing today? He's fantastic. He is sitting outside chatting with his grandparents, uh, like always. So he, after, after a round of, after two rounds of sickness, he's finally back to his normal self, doing a lot of normal things. We are starting to build new toys for him um, that are switch adaptive. And so there is a, a institute in the University of Washington here that does toy adaptation. So they take existing toys and make them switch compatible. Um, so instead of, uh, you, instead of the kid squeezing the toy, uh, he could press a button and that'll essentially do the activity that it would do when you squeeze the toy or it'll light up something or it'll throw a ball or, or do something like that. So he, he can still have fun with the toy uh, in his own ways. We're starting to adapt some of the toys uh, and the next few months our focus is going to be on cognition, uh, on, on helping him learn cause and effect and helping him uh, start to be a little bit more independent. I think he's he's getting taller. Uh, we were just talking yesterday that he's getting taller, uh, and soon he'll. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure very soon he'll he'll be bigger than what we can all imagine and, and doing crazy things <laughs> more than what we can all imagine. I'm I'm really hoping that is a reality. We hope you enjoyed learning about the real work accomplished, the huge challenges identified, and the hope found at the 2020 GPX4 Scientific Conference. We ask you to help the cause. As Sanath says, he does not have the $500 million that might eventually be needed to find a treatment or cure for Raghav. They need $3 million this year just to start funding the earliest research efforts. Their dream for an independent life for baby Raghav and other children with GPX-4 variants starts with you. You can make a tax-deductible donation at curegpx4.org donate. 
If your company would like to sponsor Raising Rare, please contact us at info at raisingrare.fm. Thank you. If you'd like to follow Raghav's story, please subscribe to Raising Rare.